Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z podcast. I'm your host, Steph Bodrini. This podcast is for everyone who wants to learn about commercial property investing and join our real estate family. We get the best people in the industry to give you straightforward and practical advice that you can actually use in your investing. And in today's episode, we are continuing our conversation with Chris Rising, co-founder of Rising Realty Partners, a firm that manages 5 million square feet of assets worth a billion and a half dollars. We are talking about top three lessons learned, biggest problems that he has faced in his career and how he has dealt with it. It's definitely a very informative episode. Here we go. What are some of the scariest things besides COVID that you have dealt with and how did you get out of them? Well, I do have a couple of stories, but one that that sticks out because it still makes me want to throw up. Um, <laughs> We were buying an asset in Pasadena and it was an office. It was after the GFC and I got introduced to kind of a tech celebrity uh, who was a wonderful person. I like him a lot, but he made a ton of money and twice and, but had never been in real estate and he had hired someone to do his real estate because he wanted to diversify we found this project that we were buying. It was a bit distressed. We were bringing in at the time a um, competitor to WeWork. So we're going to have some leasing. And the whole deal made a lot of sense. And I talked to him on the phone and I said, look, we, we've been underwriting this. Our money goes non-refundable on Friday. But you know, if you're not there, we're, we're not going to go non-refundable. And he said, yes. Uh, yeah, we're going to, I think, yeah, it was this mumbling yes. And um, I'm like, okay. Good. All right. And I remember calling the broker and saying, let's let the money go non-refundable. It was a million dollar deposit. And literally about an hour after I called the broker in the escrow, I get a call from one of this guy's representatives saying, you know, we're not hundred percent sold. And, you know, we're going to want to look at this deal longer. I'm like, no, no, no. That's not how real estate works. I, I just relied on a commitment from your boss and I just put a million dollars at risk. Oh, what are you talking about? And no, 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 you can't do that and all that. And I had I had a good 24 hours before the principal guy called me and said, Chris, I apologize. I didn't realize, of course, I'll honor what I'm going to do. And then his advisors come out the next day. They all come out to meet me and they're like, we screwed up. We didn't realize that, that this had happened. But I'll tell you, there was 24 hours. <laughs> I, I, you know, what are you going to do? Suicide? Yeah, you probably would have sued over a million bucks. But that was so that was something. I will tell you, he's, uh, he's still someone I respect greatly and we got through it and it's all fine, but it wasn't fun. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Fun. <laughs> I've, yeah. I've had those situations before. What would you do differently next time for this not to happen? Well, so our whole company, anybody who knows our company is, is based on this concept that we need an SOP for everything, a standard operating procedure for everything. And anytime we make a mistake, it needs to go into a sauna yeah. as a new SOP and we got to yep. update the Excel <laughs> spreadsheet and all that. But as it relates to this, we do not anymore. Um, we're a bigger company now, but we would never take an investor conversation as gospel. And so yeah. we have to have it in writing before we would commit to do something like that. I think anybody who's an entrepreneur, the ideas are always fun and they're always great and it's great. But whenever you're starting a business, you got to have operating procedures. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs miss that. 
you start when you can keep everything in your head or on your own computer and then you evolve where you have to communicate with the team and but i think a lot of people forget that you should be writing down every step i mean everything should be like mcdonald's where you go to work at mcdonald's you know every step to make a burger and i think that's it gets lost on people and boy that was a I, I had a mentor who was a lawyer, Mike Meyer. Uh, he was a leasing guy. He's, when I first started working for him, he goes, Chris, you see that I have a dent in my forehead. I'm like, what? He goes, yes, that's for all these. Oh, my God, I didn't think of it. <laughs> hitting himself on the head. Oh, I didn't think of that. And then he writes it down on a list. And he pulled out an old legal pad that probably had 400 pages of handwritten notes. And every one of those was a mistake he didn't want to repeat. <laughs> my gosh. So thank yeah. god for the internet and these podcasts <laughs> and youtube videos because we don't have to go through these mistakes ourselves we can learn from people hey, like you thanks thanks yeah that was i'll tell you um another bad experience but it had to do with culture my father and i worked at a public company called uh, mpg office trust and the prior management was just different in so many ways we are but it was very toxic and What I learned out of all of that was if you're in an environment where yelling and screaming is okay, you got to live with it and just be in it. And I swore that when we started our company, we would never do that. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'd hear people down the hall and they'd be screaming at somebody, a broker or somebody, and the rest of the company would come out and high five. And I remember saying to my dad, I feel like we're in the Lord of the Flies. Who who wants to live this way? So when we started our company, um, one of the major rules is you treat everybody with respect. Now, it doesn't mean you don't lose your temper sometimes, but you apologize and you cool down and we do not accept yelling. It's just, it's just not acceptable. And, and I, it's just a better way to live, but it took going through a very toxic situation Mm -hmm. that was not fun. And, and to learn the lesson of what we didn't want it to be. Our mission statement and our values, uh, we, we treat everybody with respect and we listen We try to solve problems. I mean, that's that's what our business is. And that's what any business is, actually, is you got to solve problems. And the best way to do that is to be respectful to people. Absolutely agree. 100%. Yeah. If you were starting from scratch, knowing what you know now, what asset class would you pick and why? <laughs> I was going to start with, no, I wouldn't start over again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you have to be young. <laughs> and, and naive to start a business like this, but um, um, what asset? Class? Well, the easy answer is is industrial yeah, because I um, uh, you know one could argue multifamily, but you know multifamily to build multifamily to own it, you're doing lots of different tenants and things break, and it's a residential, so there's a lot uh, uh, property, yeah. so there's lots of regulations. Whereas industrial, you know, industrial was the when I started in the business. You know, that was the broker who just couldn't, in our mind, my mindset was just couldn't deal with working in an office and wanted to wear work boots and drive a pickup truck and go, which is all fine, but it wasn't real estate the way I knew it. Then when I was a young broker, my father was running Catellus, I got to meet some of these people and I was like, wow, that's great, but let's just look at the size of the commissions and, you know, industrial, triple net, smaller commissions, yeah. you got to do more deals. Well, that whole world has changed. <laughs> you know? <laughs> The, uh, I don't think the, the pickup truck and the not wearing a suit has changed. I think that's what being an industrial broker and industrial investor is. But the size of the commissions, the size of the deals, the development fees in them have changed immensely. And we had a front row seat when my dad sold Catellus to Prologis, and we could have started RRP, Rising Partners, with industrial deals. 
but where we were in the cycle, office was coming out of the GFC. We didn't have all the technological advances we had coming out of the pandemic. And we rode a really good wave of office investment. And so hindsight, yeah, I wish we bought an industrial deal or two along the way, but we didn't. We're doing it now. You know, there's another it's interesting when I was working for John Cushman at Cushman Realty, we were a very entrepreneurial real estate firm before we merged back with Cushman Wakefield. And we were doing some business up in uh, San Francisco, in South San Francisco, doing life sciences, so much so that I even had a card made up that said, you know, Chris Rising, life sciences broker, whatever it said. And I had San Francisco and San Diego. So life science has been around a long time, but it is the flavor du jour right now. When I talk to the big private equity firms, the KKRs, the Angela Gordons, the Goldmans, they all, hey, what, what's your play on life science? I, we've looked at it long and hard. I just don't think that, that I, having experienced it 20 years ago, mm. I think you're so dependent on startups and VCs. You're so dependent on entrepreneurial businesses and the costs are so high. And then you got to compete with someone like Alexandria, who's just the biggest and the best in the business, and they are good at what they do. Mm-hmm. I just don't see us doing life science. So I, I think uh, continuing in data, doing industrial, identifying good multifamily, those are all things I wish we would have done out of the gate, but we didn't have the, we had credibility in office at the time and the first office deals. And so that's where we started. I think that's great that you are diversifying and moving along with whatever is happening in the economy. There is, you know, the, the, the case for focusing, which is yes. also a great thing, but it's great well, to see that you focusing. are doing that. When you're young, you need to get an expertise. And the only way you get an expertise is if you focus. Right. As you mature and you have more resources, you can bring in that expertise so that you can grow. So we really did have to pick when we started, you know, I did not, had not done industrial. Nobody believed that my father who had been former chairman of federal reserve and run two public companies was going to be out in, you know, the city of industry trying to find industrial deals. It just was a harder sell. Now we've brought in a team leader on industrial who's been an expert in the business has been in it for a long time. We've supported that person with analysts and such. We've done the same thing in multifamily. So as we got older, as our got more mature, we could do that. But when you're young, I mean, I say this all the time to young people. I'm like, if you don't come out and have a skill that's worthy of being paid for, the I'm young and I'll hustle and I'll work real hard argument, I, it just doesn't work. You got yeah. to add value from day one. So I would always tell a young person, get a specialty. I mean, I, I started as a lawyer and you know I went to law school and, and I could come out and when I moved into brokerage, I had a value to Mr. Cushman because I could read every lease and I could... So that allowed me to get into brokerage. And then, but when we hire young people and it's a pretty interesting world we live in, we're hiring an analyst who's going to be based in Nashville and come out and see us, you know, once a month and things like that. But they were just had the skill set we wanted. And we figured we could do that analyst job remotely for a year or two and, and see how that goes. But that person has a skill set. They can use Argus, they can do spreadsheets. And that's what got them hired. Not because they, they're going to work really hard. We, we sure. kind of expect that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on to the top three biggest lessons learned in your career <laughs> or best pieces of advice. Yeah. Well, the first one I learned, and it took me a while, is that 
most times the smartest person in the world is asking the most questions. Mm-hmm. And those questions sometimes come across as dumb questions. But, you know, when I was young, I thought asking questions was annoying and I shouldn't have a place for that. I should just be there and take my notes. What I realized is that people aren't asking questions. They're not engaged and they're probably not someone I want to do business with. And so having that self-confidence when you're young to be willing to ask what may be a dumb question and knowing in your mind that part of asking the question is to see what the answer is, not yeah. necessarily because you have to ask a smart question. So it took me a long time to learn that. And people who know me, I get really nuts when we have meetings and people don't take notes. Um, taking notes, I mean, John Cushman taught me, I don't do this, but we would leave every meeting and he'd sit there and dictate exactly what happened in the meeting and all that, get that uh, out, put into files. And then the next time we go to meet with him, he knew exactly what happened. And people thought he had the greatest memory in the world. No, he just took great notes. They say that about Richard Branson too. Uh, So number one is ask questions, take notes, be engaged. Secondly is you don't have to be a jerk in business. However, you also have to understand that business isn't personal. took me a long time want a company, everything Mm -hmm. that's a family company. I want everything to be great. But you know what? As long as you treat people with respect and you're ethical and you're honest, that stuff can happen in business and it's not personal. You know, deals can blow up. I'm always amazed how people don't realize that a performer is just a guest. (laughs) We don't have crystal balls. We try to make it as educated as possible, but it's just a guest. And so I think just recognizing that it's not personal allows you to sleep at night a little bit better. Now, I mean, if you scream and yell at people and you cheat and you lie and all that, then it gets very personal. But I try to every day to make decisions from a dispassionate point. And I think the third lesson uh, that I would want to tell everybody, no matter how important all your business seems and all that stuff, it's all very fleeting. It's all very fleeting. So if you're not enjoying your family, if you're not enjoying your life, it's a hard road to get to your 50s and realize that you don't have a great family and you don't have a great thing. Because mm-hmm. it's interesting, my father's 80 now and he's pretty much moved on from the business. And I think of things that were so important 15 years ago and they're just not now. The people that were important to aren't in the business anymore. So you got to keep that perspective. Yes, you want to make money. And I, and I know there's all these people out there will be haters and say, well, it's easy for you to say that. And that's like, but you know, I look around the world and I have a different perspective 30 years after I've gotten into business. Yeah. And the one of the things is it's fleeting. It just, it, we're all here on borrowed time and all these experiences, no matter what you think you own, you really rent it, uh, you know, because <laughs> there'll be a reason why you sell it someday. So um, enjoy it while, while you're here and don't let it pass you by. So hopefully yeah. those were three. No, that that's great. Thank you. Very, very useful and very true, right? The more people I know that are super, super successful, they're saying and doing the exact same thing. They're like, things are things. And what matters is the people around you. And are you really happy Yeah. for the smart ones? There are some better <laughs> keeping up with the Joneses out there. Yes. Yeah. This has been wonderful. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you think is important well, for our I'm, listeners? I'm sure there's a ton and I'm happy <laughs> to come back on. Yes. You know, one of the things that I'm really interested in, and I put this out to uh, all of your listeners is to really think about what life is going to be as we reopen. It is not going to be uh, what it was in 2019, no matter how many people want it to be. I also don't think 
that it's the Jetsons and it's a whole new world and we'll never communicate in person again. It's just going to be different. And that's going to affect all asset classes. It's going to affect leasing brokers if they're representing a tenant or if they're representing a landlord. It's going to affect architects. And I don't think anybody has it figured out because we're not back yet. Our occupancy downtown for One Cal Plaza is well over 90%, but our daily occupancy, people coming in the building is like 20%. Now we have started to see parking go up. So people are coming down. I think if you drive anywhere in LA, you can see traffic is up. So people are doing things. They're just not coming to the office. As they come back, which I think will happen. And I think the tech companies, they can say that people can work from home all they want. They're the ones scooping up real estate right now. So I think ultimately they're going to have people come back. But that new world isn't defined yet. And because it's not defined, there's going to be opportunities, new ways to get business, new ways to find deals. And so I encourage people to think about it that way. Don't think that, okay, finally in January, it's going to be like it used to be and I can go work at the office and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to be that way. Another opportunity to think about technology and implement as much tech as you possibly can. Because if you don't, your neighbors will, your, your competitors will. Exactly. How can our listeners get in touch with you, Chris? Well, there's a, there's a couple of ways. Let me start with number one. I too have a podcast. So I, I, you know, I'd love it if people went to, uh, and checked out The Real Market with Chris Rising. I think the, other, the best way is to follow me on Twitter and at Chris Rising, all one word, for my Twitter handle. And there is an incredible community on Twitter that I encourage everybody to look at. It's, a, it's called hashtag RETWIT. And it's the real estate Twitter community and it's growing and it's entrepreneurial and it's really exciting. And then you can always just go to our website and you can find my email address there and contact me via email. And as always, all of these links will be under show notes. What was the hashtag again on Twitter? R-E-Twix? Twit. T-R-T-W-I-C. Oh, tweet, tweet. Yeah. Got it. Well, it says Twit because it's an I. Uh, so okay. it's R-E-T-W-I-T. Uh, awesome. There's probably now a RE tweet as well, but that's that's kind of where the entrepreneurial real estate community is, has found Twitter there. And I, I highly encourage everybody to be checking that out. Thank you so much, Chris. This has been phenomenal. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I would love to thank one of our latest reviewers, JM777. Thank you, Steph. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. I've listened to every single episode and truly get excellent information from each one. I'm a small investor in the shopping center space. Very cool. And typically have a three-hour commute to visit my properties. Your podcast is my go-to during these drives. You have excellent discussions with knowledgeable guests. You always ask the right questions. Thank you so much, JM777. I really appreciate your thoughtful review. I will definitely look for a proper guest to answer your question regarding how to find deals outside of listing websites. And I will see you next time.